Walker today. I'm Andy Brownell on this Friday, News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. And I am joined by Steve Lang from Rochester Magazine. Hey, how Steve, you how you doing? Good, how are you doing? I'm hanging in there. <laughs> yeah. Everybody has gotten the cold, and I think I finally uh, got a touch of it. Yeah, it's certainly going around. I've avoided it so far, but I've got a couple of friends who've had it, and they said 48 hours of you know, pretty rough times, and then it's all all on the upswing from there. But uh, Okay. I just hope my voice will hold out through our little little chat today. Um, almost Christmas time. I've got to ask you guys, because the Lang family always does weird stuff no matter what season it is. Do you have, do you have any strange holiday traditions in your household? So we don't really do a whole lot of gifts. We really just kind of give the kids cash. Lindy puts a lot of effort into their stockings and little gifts, but we do a secret Santa exchange. So you have, I think it's $20 maximum. We draw names and you have a secret Santa. And it has been really cool because people have really put the effort into it. So um, two years ago, my oldest daughter had my wife and she, used her money to buy one of those uh, genealogy boards and have it framed. And then she spent a bunch of her time and effort coming up with the family genealogy. There's always wow. a, sto- a story I told to my son. Um, it was kind of this, you know, children's book, just, just vocalized. And my oldest daughter had me last year and she had gathered all of the words to that story that I've told over and over to my kid when he was little and she turned it into a children's book. So she made the drawings and um, nice. so it's, it's really cool. I mean, and early on when people weren't putting effort in, like, you know, kind of forgot or got left of the loop, you'd realize pretty early that, you know, you better or you're going to, you know, be horribly. Uh, <laughs> so that's actually really cool because it really turns the emphasis from how much you're going to spend to how much, effort you're going to put into it. So we've had a lot of really cool, thoughtful gifts, especially one kid to another. It's really, really cool to see the kids spend time on gifts for each other when they have, you know, whatever it was, 10 or 20 bucks to spend. So, And your your families are spread all over the place. So do you guys have to travel a lot or do you hunker down? uh, We've kind of hunkered down. We used to go to Michigan all the time for Christmas. We just realized you no, know, it was great, but it was kind of taken away from our Christmas here, especially with our kids now spread out. So, um, you know, all the kids get together here, and and it's been it's been a lot of fun. And like I said, the you know, we have the for a while we just had you could only buy dollar store gifts, and you could only spend five bucks, I think. And then we kind of upped it because it was getting a little bit tough. But <laughs> it's always really funny to see what the kids get and the time they spend, and and it's been really nice to get away from making money the emphasis of the christmas side of things yeah the yeah that's a good point very good point we always have a my side of the family get together at our house my better half's family is the extended family is so large now they have to rent a meeting room at a hotel to have the christmas because yeah, yeah. nobody's home is large enough to host all these people and i think we're actually on my side starting to edge into that with you know the grand more and more grand, well, actually now great-grandchildren. Not my great-grandchildren, but if you consider my parents who have long passed. But the one tradition that stays every year, and this started when I was a little kid, is to play poker on Christmas. Mm. So that after all the meals are cleaned up and everybody's relaxing, 
into the evening. The the cards come out of the table and the crazy game of poker starts with all the brothers and sisters and now the nieces and nephews that they get into it. And, you know, it's low stake stuff. It's just for the fun of it. But the funny part about it is it goes back to I had a great aunt who was uh, never married, but uh, so she would spend Christmas with our family every year. And that was that was her contribution to Christmas. She would come with her portable gambling suitcase with a roulette wheel, a uh, place to play craps and whatever game you might want to play and taught all our children how to gamble for Christmas every year <laughs> and take out a new contest. But the poker part always stuck. That sounds awesome. It can be fun. It can be a little strange at times, too. Yeah, yeah. So you on this issue uh, have every single day of the rest of the winter planned out for everybody. You know, this is always one. We do this for the summer issue. So for June, July, starting June 1, and for um, December, January, February, and that starts obviously December 1. But we actually we've hired a freelancer now who works closely with us. It's actually my daughter, Hadley who puts this together. So she spends a lot of time going through a lot of different calendars and emailing a lot of different organizations. And, you know, you and I get those kinds of things emailed to us as well, but we're doing this one well in advance, but yeah, we got a hundred days. So um, I better be careful here and pick something good, but what's today? The, the December, what, sick or what? Ninth. Friday the ninth. <laughs> so, um, a Christmas Carol at the Merlin Merlin Players are putting on their final production, the Christmas Carol in the Paradise Center for the Arts in Faribault. Tomorrow, the Northern Lights Festival, the North's largest indoor light park, is set up at Mayo Civic Center. And on Sunday, uh, Ann Reed is playing at the Chatfield Center for the Arts, the, one of the Chosen Bean concerts, and it just goes on and on from there. So a lot of really cool events for like you said, all 100 days of, of winter, which sometimes can get a little bit uh, tough to find. But it's been a lot easier this year than the past few years of putting this calendar together. I bet. And it was. There were some pretty uh, pretty thin years in 2021 especially. But, uh, boy, everything really seemed back uh, in order for a lot of the in-person events for this winter, and hopefully that uh, that holds on. Is it easier or harder? Take the COVID years out easier or harder to do the summer or the winter? I would say definitely the winter. The summer one, there's a lot of regularly scheduled summer events between Thursdays on first, the Wednesday concert series, the concert in the park series, the Sunday down by the Riverside series. Sure. Those universals you can plug in for a big percentage. There's just not those kind of universals. In fact, the problem with the winter one is a lot of the events are built around, um, the school break are built around, you know, the other winter breaks. So, so this one takes a little bit more of a stretch. And like I had to tell you that for that first one, that was a Faribault piece. That's usually farther than we'd like to go. But, uh, um, but there's also a lot of very local stuff from, from Goonies comedy to, um, you know, all kinds of things happening at the history center and the Rochester public library, but just a really cool, magazine to hold on to and I keep it in my car all year long for when my daughter and I are driving around or doing whatever else it's like hey what can we go do today that's happening locally all right we're chatting with Steve Long Steve Long. Steve Lang I can't wow. I can't even pronounce words correctly today yeah Steve. I'll blame that on your cold <laughs> 
I am, uh, but we'll return. Steve Lang from Rochester Magazine will return to Rochester today in a moment on News Talk 1340, KROC AM at 96.9 FM. This is the Family Service. On News Talk 1340, KROC AM at 96.9 FM with Steve Lang rather than Lund. <laughs> I have no idea how that came out that way. Uh, the Rochester Magazine. Um, once again, hats off to you guys with your historical piece you put into the magazine. This is uh, kind of getting to be your uh, your M.O., isn't it? Uh, the Rochester Magazine. It was a great piece about, a, once again, a Rochester right I had never heard of. You know, we're regularly doing surveys of readers and asking people stuff and monitoring how the stories do online, obviously. And, you know, we've really found that these more in-depth historical pieces do really well. And especially when we got somebody like Tom Weber who's writing them for us. So, you know, Tom and I have really worked well together on these where, you know, he, he does a regular history piece for the PB as well. But for us, when there's something with a little bit more depth, we can flush that out in the magazine and run it here. And yeah, this one I'd never heard of. Actually, I was looking um, to see what he had come up next. And I was going through our emails and I saw when he pitched this to me, he just said, hey, have you ever heard of Herman Klinsman? And I was like, no. I didn't. <laughs> He's like, well, this guy had the, you know, in the very early days of bicycle racing in the 1890s, he at one point held the record for the fastest half mile and the fastest mile. And, you know, the way bicycle records are set up, they don't bicycle like this anymore, right? You're not just racing a, a half mile or racing a mile for the most part. And so it's hard to see where or if some of these records were ever broken because it might have been the last time they were actually doing this kind of racing and these kind of bicycles. But, yeah, this was a 23-year-old kid who in, 19, in 1893 at the um, Rochester Fairgrounds won a giant race where they brought a lot of the best racers in from the Midwest. And, and not only did he win the race, he set the new half-mile record as far as I could tell in the history of bicycle racing up to that point, the fastest half mile ever in the history of bicycle racing at eight, in 1893, right here at the Rochester fairgrounds. And it's just a great description from the Rochester post, the newspaper of the day. And after that, he was picked up by a professional team. So, um, you know, a, a bicycle sales company who, who put this team together, like happens today to, travel around the country and race different people and show them that their riders and their bicycles were the best. And so he was on that team and, and gets a really cool mention in the New York times talking about bicycle racing and how it was taken off in the day. And um, this was the New York times from May of 1894 saying um, Tom Eck, a well-known manager, bicycle racing manager is training a young man whom he thinks will be able to beat any of the fast cycle riders his name is Herman Klinsman, and he hails from the West. So that's the West. Yeah, that's Herman Klinsman from Rochester, Minnesota, hailing from the West and getting this prominent mention in the New York Times in a big piece about about the the big influx of bicycle racing across the country. And it's easy to forget how big bicycling racing was in those times because you're talking pre automobile here. You know, you, you really weren't going any faster from anything self-powered, right? So right. This was it. So, and, you know, bicycles were relatively new, really just just taking hold in the, in the U.S. at that time. And so for these guys to show up at somewhere like a fairgrounds, uh, you know, again, traveling all over the country, 
and show people how fast and how powerful these new, you know, bicycles were, it was a huge coup for the bicycle sales. And, you know, just like auto racing today or shoes today or bicycles today as well, motorcycles, these teams would come in, show that their bicycle was the fastest, and then people would buy their bicycle. And it was a, it was a substantial investment in the 1890s for a family to buy a bicycle and they were, you know, going to buy the best or the most affordable. So um, just a really cool story about a really small period in in U.S. history, right? I mean, bicycle racing, um, this was really the kind of heyday of the first wave of bike racing. But I think in the Olympics, don't they still do the circular or oval track type races for the Olympics? I think it's... But if you watch those, it's all just winning. So they might be going really, really slow for the first, you know, two-thirds of the race, and they all take off at the end, which Uh has now become, you know, the benchmark for bicycle racing. So there's really not – there's very little of the other type of just speed and distance racing. This is it. I mean, it's either really a long race or those kind of velodrome pieces. So, um, so yeah, this was, you know – and, again, for here, to do this and set a – a you know world record i assume at the rochester fairgrounds in 1893 was a pretty big deal and that story from the rochester post got picked up by newspapers all over the country that people couldn't believe um that this guy had won (laughs) half mile in a minute six and a half seconds um two seconds faster than the previous previous mark at that time so i cannot believe they don't have a marker at the Elmstead county fairgrounds for this <laughs> you know like you said this is another guy where i had no idea not only that but we found through the history center of Olmsted county these phenomenal photos of herman klinsman so a lot of them were used for advertising so they obviously did some beautiful portraiture of him on his bicycle in order to sell these bikes but uh luckily they History Center of Olmstead County had these available to us, but there's one in 1894 of him on a Barnes white flyer bicycle. There's one of a, the entire team for one of the racing teams, which included uh, his brother, Henry. And again, they're kind of modeling a bicycle and standing around it. But, you know, just a bunch of the guys in what looked like those you know, 1890s swimsuits, basically, for men. Or it was like a kind of a one piece with the, you know, kind of early bike shorts attached. But... And the cool thing, too, is Herman Klinsman actually stuck around here, became a uh, an important figure in the community, served in some different political offices, and was a well-known uh, business and civic leader. So what happened to his bicycling career? I mean, he at one point, he's on top of the world. He sets the world record as a professional. And next thing, he goes back out, quote-unquote, out west, returns home. So hey, was there ever an explanation for that? So... What happened is they put these teams together. They started to race teams to support bicycle racing across the country. Then, and there's a number of different theories, but the popularity of bicycles went up and the more bicycles were being created that were for the everyday person. So it was kind of like, in my mind, buying one of the early 1900 cars. Okay, yep, those were expensive and a few people could afford them. And then it's like the Model T came along, and now everyone could afford bicycles, and these these teams traveling the country to promote these high-end bicycles, which would have been the you know the Rolls-Royce of vehicles of the day, they really fell apart, and their sponsorship fell apart. Oh, sure. And, so, um, and it was interesting because Eck, 
at uh, the manager of Klinsman. He had him race a big race in Toledo, and Klinsman actually set uh, a new world record for the mile of a minute 50.4. So, a, you know, a, a big jump from a minute and five for a half mile to a minute 50 to, to a full mile. And then that was really it for the teams. They just fell apart pretty quickly. The sponsorship went away because they didn't, you know, it was a, it was a, a lot like, like I said, like Rolls Royce versus, uh, versus Henry Ford's Model T. Once sure. everyone could buy them, no one was, only the select few were buying the really expensive ones. And he also got married around the same time. So right after setting that mile record, he came back and uh, married Catherine Dore, I think her name was, D-O-R-E, a former clerk at Leeton Knowlton Department Store here in Rochester. And and that was really it. So while Herman Klinsman continued to race locally, he no longer really raced professionally. He went back to the amateur ranks and and took it up more as a hobby. And, and really professional bicycle racing had been on a pretty quick downslide starting around that same time. One of the pictures in the article that just stands out to me is it was a photo taken I think only a year before his death and he's with other uh, members of the Almstead County Historical Society at the time and uh, it's interesting to see the contrast between this elderly gentleman who I think he lived almost almost 90 by the dates I think uh, in, in yep, contrast to uh, him and his youth when he was on top of the world as you know the best of the best as far as bicyclists yeah, you're exactly right so he lived until uh, 1960 and he was 89 when he died um, and had been a popular member in Rochester a lot of lo- lodges, civic organizations um, he was married and his wife Catherine now Klinsman died in 1918 and he married uh, Frida Fensky another local woman and had a home on Third Street Southeast, and you know, still had. There's still when they reference him later in the stories, like talking about him in some of the civic organizations. He always kind of got that mention of you know former professional bicyclist who who owned the the mile and half mile records. And as the far world as the, record holder, yeah. And as far as the amateur records go, which he in hindsight is still considered, I we could not find in the Olmsted History County. Uh, historical society could not find where at least one of the records had ever been broken just because it's never really been recreated in that kind of format. But uh, so just really cool to think that, like you said, in 1893 to 96 or so, actually a little bit earlier, uh, this guy was the top of the bicycle riding, you know, racing world and getting, you know, prominent mentions in places like the New York Times. This is from a kid from Rochester who, and so he worked at a bike shop here in Rochester, one of the first bike shops that opened, and just really took to it. He would go to Soldier's Field and ride his bike around there as fast as he could and realize, hey, no one can keep up with me. And then became, you know, turned into a professional bicycle racer. That's a wild, wild story. It's excellent. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, be sure to do so in this month's Rochester Magazine. Steve Lang is with us. I'm Andy Brownell for Rochester Today. We'll return after the news break on Newstock 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Looking for help? Rochester Today, Friday morning. I'm Andy Brownell. Steve Lang from Rochester Magazine with us on Newstock 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. I'm going to congratulate you again. Uh, It's been commonplace for your 
odd Chester column to be a tearjerker, but uh, this month's uh, stands out. <laughs> it's a story, um, I guess if you live here long enough, everybody's heard the story. You go to Silver Lake Park, and on the east side of the park, there's a, a grand memorial that uh, was established many years ago by the Rochester Fire Department uh, about the deaths of two firefighters and a young boy in Silver Lake in the winter of what? It was in the early 50s. But I'm going to tell you, Steve, I've heard the story many, many times. The way you told it in your column uh, was by far the best I've the best I've heard. Well, I really appreciate that, Andy. We've gotten a lot of really good strong response. And I just really, I kind of lucked out. So I was, I had heard the story, um, you know, kind of on the fringes of what I paid attention to. And I don't even know why it came up again, but I started delving into it. And I happened across through a lot of, you know, just kind of scouring the internet for stuff, a number of first person accounts of this story that hadn't really gotten a lot of play. Either they were um, letters to the editor in response to the actual story that ran in the Post Bulletin in 1953. The Home Homestead County History uh, Center had some materials available. Uh, I found some stuff online with people who had collected first-person accounts from, say, their grandparents who were there, and they had written letters about it, and, they, and I was able to track some of those down. So it really allowed me to tell the story through the people who were there, which is always really important. And yeah, in Christmas Eve of 1953, nine-year-old John Paul Stevenson, new kid in town, Arkansas kid, first winter in Rochester, um, he and a friend crossing Silver Lake that already crossed on the way there, coming back to meet his mom in time to go Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve. And from when they crossed Silver Lake from south to north, to when they returned a couple hours later, the lake had really changed. The sun had come out. Um, the new turbine at the power plant was uh, discharging warm water into the lake. Um, the sun had come out, like I said, it was overcast previously. And when they came back across the same route they'd taken, John Paul fell through the ice. His friend, nine-year-old Larry Bloom, ran to the nearest house, uh, happened to be the home of the local uh, coroner and told the coroner's housekeeper what had happened. And she immediately called the Rochester Fire Department. And the two firefighters there, Ambrose Riley and Stan O'Brien, both World War II vets, guys who'd come into the into the RP, RFD at the same time, um, both electricians working on toys for the toy drive, which was happening the next day, right? Ooh, I'm going to have a hard time getting through the story. But these guys take off to go down there and help this kid, and they see him in the water right away. He's flailing. He's becoming hypothermic. He can grab the edge of the ice, and it either breaks or he falls off. And everyone, all the eyewitness accounts will agree on one thing. These guys didn't hesitate at all. They grabbed a ladder from the top of the truck, and they took off on Silver Lake across that same ice they knew didn't hold that nine-year-old kid. They're coming from the south to the north. They get as close to the kid as they can. They're reaching the ladder out, and they can't reach him. And they just decide we got to go for it. And they slide to the edge of the ice. It breaks through as well. And now you've got two firefighters in full gear. And I actually found some images of the gear that these guys were wearing. 
and this was heavy stuff, right? They're wearing their full turnout gear, big rubber boots, big heavy, you know, pants that are uh, something that's soaking up water pretty quickly. And instead of going back on the ice, these guys go for the kid. Other firefighters follow. They're falling through the ice as well, but managing to get back out. A few other guys try to launch canoes to get to the kid. There are about 100, 150 people on shore at this point watching this, this happen. At one point, they get the kid on a log, the two firefighters do, and he keeps the raw log keeps rolling over and the kid keeps falling off. And by this point, it's cold. They're all pretty hypothermic. And, and this is probably the most devastating part of the whole thing. But um, at one point, eyewitnesses will say that the canoe was close enough one of the canoes had gotten close enough to the firefighters where they could have bailed on the kid and gotten in the canoe or grabbed the canoe, and they didn't. And they all went, the kid went down, the two firefighters, uh, O'Reilly and or O'Brien and Riley, went after the kid, and none of the three came back up. On Christmas Eve, to on add Christmas, to the tragedy. On Christmas Eve, with a lot of people from shore watching, and... Uh, you know, these these two guys and a number of the other people there as well just never gave up. I mean, they they went down that last time. They didn't come back up. Other firefighters were then trying to get in the water or get close to these guys, and it took about 15 minutes before they pulled the first body out. And, you know, you got people on shore running to get blankets from their homes to try to warm people up. You've got uh, people taking turns performing CPR on – on John Paul and on Ambrose and on Stan, and and none of them made it. But it was uh, just a, you know, one of those acts of heroism that it's hard to put into perspective when you hear the stories about how quickly these guys and other people reacted trying to save this kid, and and how quickly they made the decision to go after the kid as opposed to save themselves. Yeah. When at that point they're waterlogged and they're tired and becoming, as you said, hypothermic and know their chances are dwindling by the second as well. That's yeah, it's one of those stories that just grabs a hold of you. The way you told it is just it's excellent. Um, irony is, as a person who grew up in this town, I don't remember this story being told until I don't know if it was the anniversary of it. In the 80s, maybe it was the 70s, but then it got talked about again. And then there was a move to create the memorial. And then there was a ceremony, of course, that was held with survivors of the firefighters and others who gathered for the initial dedication of that ceremony. And I know they do an event there every single year on the, you know, it's honor fallen firefighters. But it, to me, it, there's, a strangeness to it that it got lost in time for a while and it never should have somehow it should have been front and center their heroics for a long a lot longer than it than it has been and there is a tribute this year every year the rochester fire department has a christmas christmas eve ceremony of remembrance it's a five bell tribute which is the tribute to fallen firefighters for riley and o'brien it's held this year, I think it'll be at 9 a.m. on December 24th in front of that Silver Lake Monument. And there is a cool monument there with the firefighter um, uh, design on top, the, the up top of the, the 
it's a monument that lists all the firefighters who died in Rochester history, and, and obviously these two were included. And that's really powerful stuff. If people get a chance to go down there this year, um, you know, like you said, it's probably one of those things that gets overlooked, and there's not a lot of turnout oftentimes at this at this uh, Christmas Eve ceremony. But certainly, you know, these guys deserve all the all the <laughs> hero titles that can get thrown at them because what no. they did, and again. A um, number of other guys did everything they could as well, but these two went above and beyond. They were the first ones who made their way out to, to John Paul and, and like I said, had that choice of trying to grab this kid one more time or trying to get back to their own canoes, and they tried to grab the kid, and it, it didn't work out for any of them. But, uh, no. And, and I so in doing the research, you know, again, I got 900 words or 800 words to write these stories, um, you know, trying to track down the guys before they came here. So I think it's Ambrose Riley. This was a guy who, um, you know, had a long history of, uh, both these guys served in World War II. Uh, Riley had been shot down in World War II, had served in a prisoner of war camp. Just guys who really had, you know, a long history of doing the right thing and, and, and they had that last opportunity and that's what they chose to do. And, um, I know I've seen on some of the Facebook comments where the story was posted that um, there's still relatives living here. I think Ambrose Riley has a daughter who lives here. And a lot of people were reaching out to me via email and other, you know, Facebook and text to say, man, I knew this story. I was here and saw it. And and it's as powerful as it gets. It is. And uh, another strange aspect of the story, and this is the, you know, the change over time and the nature of the lake. Um I would think that today you could probably walk across that lake because it's filled in so much with sediment that it would probably be waist deep at the deepest. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and back then, I'm sure uh, it was much deeper and the river was probably moving, uh, the, under, the undercurrent was probably moving faster. I don't know, but it, when I when I read it, I kept thinking, oh, you know, I know the story, but you, you still hold out hope somehow when you read it, just the way you wrote it. You wrote it in uh, in a way that you, you keep rooting at the end that somehow the, there's going to be a happy ending to a story when I know there's not a happy ending. And uh, that was part of my hope was, oh, you know, you gain footing and everybody can walk away from this thing. But, yeah. No, it was just a lot of things had really worked against him. Obviously, the the temps, the the new turbine, which was just brought yeah. online basically for the Christmas lighting season as part of the power plant on Silver Lake. Um, and, you know, they, by all accounts, they were basically following the same footsteps they took on the way there. And, and so many people did so much. I mean, the nine-year-old friend, Larry Bloom, to try to run back to a home. You know, you're nine. Kids get scared, do the wrong things. I mean, this kid ran to the nearest house and that that woman who answered the door immediately called the fire department and she ran out to try to see if she could help the kid and realized, you know, she certainly couldn't from the north side of the lake with the, you know, how thin the ice was there. And then for these guys to show up from the downtown fire department and immediately take off out on the ice to save this kid was, uh, you know, was, was pretty heroic stuff. Well, if you don't have anything going on Christmas Eve uh, that afternoon, I'd strongly urge everyone to go. Yeah, it's Christmas Check morning, morning. 9, 9 a.m. Christmas 9 morning. 9 a.m., okay. At, at the fire department's monument, which I think, Andy, is right by the old Silver Lake Fire Department, correct? 
No, I thought it was on the other side of the lake. Okay, I better check that out. But I'm sure once people get get close to there, I'm sure I'm that would make more sense that it's over by that kind of uh, gazebo thing over there. Is that yeah, what you're well, we'll be corrected either way. Okay, yeah, but Trust definitely people, people can get over there. I think it's a story that's really worth revisiting. I mean, it it it's all the stuff about you know the things that firefighters and all first responders put themselves uh, up against every single day, and you know it's a good lesson about about kids and ice and water, and, and there's just a lot of good reasons to be part of this. All right. We'll come back after a quick break with more Steve Lang from Rochester Magazine on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. This is the Family Service with Rochester Magazine's Steve Lang on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Your uh, 10 or so questions this week, the owner of Taco Jed, local establishment here in town interesting guy really is an interesting guy and the fact that he kind of backed into the taco business yeah um you know however many years ago is pretty phenomenal he was actually doing a number of other things and happened to go to a taco joint and just fell in love with it at a time where they were looking at doing some um i think some real estate purchasing or something similar some development and just said, man, this is awesome. I mean, we got a taco at a specific place. I think it was in Dallas or somewhere in Texas. And so this is awesome. And decided that's what he wanted to do. Um, they started a taco joint in Texas that took off and became franchised and kind of brought him up to Minneapolis with that franchise and then decided he was going to start his own place and chose Rochester. He could have been anywhere in the world. He knew he wanted to be close to Minneapolis, but not too close to the other franchises wanted to start his own take on his own taco place and and taco jed was born so he had never visited here before searching for a place to locate a restaurant he definitely been through here but when he was in minneapolis at the time he knew he wanted to stay somewhere in the midwest he had family living in this area this yeah. was a pretty centralized area but i don't remember if i put it in the story or not yeah he so he looked at he just picked a bunch of cities that he thought were the right size were kind of on the upswing and were in his mind, in need of somewhere like this. And so we looked at Duluth, St. Cloud, Mankato, Rochester, and came down here, had some really good interactions with different people, saw, um, you know, found that location where he's in now near Brothers Bar. And so picked Rochester of all those, and it really has worked out, you know, well for him. And he's, it's a cool place. I mean, it we is. love Taco Jed. We, uh, you know, I'm not just saying this because they're an advertiser in the magazine. We go, we get tacos. In fact, I went in the other day to get tacos, and he was in there working at the bar, and I was like, oh, I got the magazine in the car. It just came out. So I was like, hey, here's your 10 questions, and I already ordered my tacos <laughs> to pick up. So it's just a cool, laid-back place. It's a really cool vibe. The bar part's cool. When it's nice out, that outdoor seating is cool, and their taco truck is, uh, you know, is as good as it gets. So, yeah, super interesting guy. And uh it's interesting to me as well that, so growing up in the Midwest, you pretty much, for a while, you had, you know, there was maybe one taco joint in town, and then it got to be maybe the 80s, and you had a couple, because they had, you know, Taco John's had been here, and I think there was Antigo's, and then it became Taco Bell, uh, but now, I think tacos, have, it has to be the most popular food served in this city, There's you, you can't throw a stick without running into a taco truck or a taco restaurant, you know, yeah, Mexican we, restaurant. We fall into that same thing, right? So my wife and I will be going out for tacos and we're discussing, 
pretty intimately four or five <laughs> taco place options for what we're in the mood for. So we have experience enough taco, uh, you know, variety in the city where we know it's not that you want Mexican food anymore. It's which taco place yeah. you want to go to based on your mood right now. And I know Taco Jet has picked up a heck of a following. My daughter, when she comes to visit, she always has to make sure she goes there because she and her fiance just are devotees to Taco Jet. And I, really, I think they're good too, but I'm like, I like to sample all the different places. I do too, but we will definitely hit Taco Jet. It's more one that um, if our whole family is going to agree on one, it's probably Taco Jet. So we just, we just had all the kids here. It was my wife's birthday and all the kids were here and we, we decided on Taco Jets. That was when I actually saw Steve at the very beginning of December. But uh, yeah, well, how did you, know, how'd you pick Steve for this month's ten or so questions? Um, you know, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. I think I saw. I, I was talking to a buddy who has a band, and he mentioned Steve Dunn. And I was like, "Oh, the Taco Jet guy is in a band," or and he's like, "Yes, we he's you know." guitarist he's been trying to start a band or they started one they're looking at playing out so i thought well that's a cool angle and i just started doing some research on on steve and reached out to him and uh and yeah we had a lot of fun with the interview and like you said he's a really interesting guy had done you know zero or copier sales in la door-to-door copier sales yeah back in the i gotta day. ask and about that <laughs> he <laughs> who said there's buy, a, who, who buys a copier from somebody going door-to-door what is that about Pretty rough job, he said, to go door-to-door in L.A. trying to sell copiers. And number one, how many people need a copier in their house? What is? <laughs> he did say back in the day then, that was something where a lot of people, if they had a home business, you know, to have a copy machine was a big deal in your house. You remember that. So, but, yeah, just uh, it, and the place does have a really cool vibe. It's It's super laid back. It's really welcoming. It's, you know, it's just beer and chill and get some food and there's no you know no questions asked of why you're hanging around there for three hours just eating a couple tacos and a few (laughs) what's in what's in the the next issue of rochester magazine so next issue is january so that will have our annual rochis some of the worst weirdest years i just finished writing that up and there's never um a lack of weird stories for for Rochester in the previous year. Uh, I've got a piece on the bomb-sniffing dogs. There are two of which in Rochester, and that was fun to get to spend a training session with the two bomb-sniffing dogs in Rochester. And maybe a good historical piece for you. We'll see if we have space for it, and then also a piece on uh, financial advisors. But uh, wrapping that up, and then February is our best restaurants issue. So a lot of good wow, okay. in Roch Mag, So Well, you have a great holiday here. Merry Christmas to you and your family, and we'll check in in 2023, Steve. Yeah, thanks a lot. Same to you, Andy. All right. This is Steve Lang with Rochester Magazine on Rochester Today, News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Founder of Knight Strategic Wealth.